podcast today, we talked about how BC employees will now be entitled to five paid sick leave days starting in January 2022. And hiding symptoms at work, it's known as masking symptoms, and a lot of people have to do it. As workers head back to the job site, this will mean tough times ahead for those that have to hide how they're doing physically. And we meet the new interim leader of the Green Party. Let's take a listen. Last week, Minister Harry Baines ushered in a new policy about paid sick leave in BC. This is an important day for the people of British Columbia. I firmly believe that no worker should have to choose to go to work sick or stay home and lose wages. But about half of BC workforce does not have paid sick leave. The workers without coverage, usually the most vulnerable workers in our society, those in low paying jobs, often women and racialized people. These are the very people who can least afford to stay home and lose wages when sick. Together, we have learned many difficult lessons during this pandemic. One being how important it is for workers to stay home when they are sick and not lose wages. That's why last May, our government introduced three days of paid sick leave. This particular leave was directly related to COVID-19 pandemic. This has made a big difference to workers who can stay home and get healthy with peace of mind, to employers who are ensuring that the customers and their employees are safe, and to our community by reducing the spread of COVID-19. Now we must look to the future. Everyone value safe workplaces. Employers do not want their employees to come to work sick. They have made this point loud and clear. Paid sick leave is the best way to achieve this. So for the first time ever, we are creating permanent province-wide paid sick leave starting January 1st, 2022. After an extensive consultation and with input from many voices, we have made a decision. All workers covered by Employment Standard Act will be entitled to a minimum of five days of employer-paid sick leave each year. Now, everyone gets sick from time to time. And now we are the first province to implement a minimum standard of five days of paid sick leave each year. The announcement for five days of paid sick leave was welcomed by many workers, but criticized by many in business, including Paul Holden. He's the CEO of the Burnaby Board of Trade, and he joins us now. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. How are you? Good. It's great to have you uh, on the show. What was Burnaby Board of Trade's position on, on paid sick leave? What were the areas of concern that you'd submitted to the province for consideration before they made this decision? Well, I think one of the, there were a couple of areas, really. The, fir- the first area was really um, uh, around the timing of this. Uh, as you heard from the clip, we already have, um, because of, because of, of uh, thoughts around COVID, we have three days um, uh, paid sick leave already as, as a measure uh, right now. Um, and, and we didn't have any issues with that as, as, a, as a temporary COVID-related uh, measure. Um, our concerns were really around the timing now of, of enshrining into law uh, yet another cost on business, making it five days of of, 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 of employer-paid uh, sick leave. Uh, if, if you think of everything that, that uh, businesses and business owners have been through over the last couple of years, 
with with all of the the, the, the revenue and income related issues, but particularly the rising costs that businesses have had to put up with over the last uh, the last couple of years. Um, to do this right now, we just didn't understand the timing of it, um, and then to announce it just just this week and give businesses a month uh, to get to to, to get uh, to come to terms with this, where many businesses. They've probably just finished doing their budgeting. They're ready just to move into next year. And now this cost um, has, has hit them. So we had a number of issues around um, the, the need to do this right now, um, but also the, the need for, for this to be an area that government uh, inserts itself into and gets involved with. We didn't see the need for that. You mentioned constraints on business. We know that the COVID-19 protocols were costly. Businesses lost a lot of workers. We've heard a lot about that and have had to pivot. But isn't that what business is? Isn't it this risky endeavor, not for the faint of heart, to, to chase profit, but you, you should be able to, as a company, handle some paid sick leave for your staff, No. Well, I think it's, it's, there are a few points to that, that really, and, and you're right. Businesses are, are used to pivoting. Businesses, are, I think one thing we've seen over this last couple of years really is, and certainly in our community in Burnaby, we've seen uh, the incredible resistance of, of business owners. It really is, to your point, it's not for the faint-hearted. It's not easy to, to set up and run uh, and, and make a business successful. And, and certainly when you have the, the incredible impacts on revenue that we've seen over this last couple of years, but also some of the rising costs in terms of the employer health tax, uh, the rising cost in terms of, of, of property tax, the rising cost in terms of, of, of the increases in minimum, minimum wage that we've seen. Um, you know, there comes a point where you have to think to yourself, well, just how much more can, can business take? And, and to the point about sick leave, we were hearing from a, a number of our members, you know, m- many people already offer sick leave. Maybe they offer three days sick leave, but many other businesses have other mechanisms to address uh, employee health and wellness. And, 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 and our view is very much that this is an area that's really best left for business to deal with. It's an area that's between the employer um, and the employee. Um, and, and we didn't see the need for government to come in and, and, uh, and, and mandate the five days, especially, and I'll go back to the point, especially at this time. Um, keep the three days going that's, that's currently in place. And let's really then look and, and do... Um, a, 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 a much more fulsome review of, of what might be some options going forward. You mentioned rising costs there for businesses, uh, lots that they had to absorb there over the COVID-19 pand- pandemic. What about how inflation hit workers? We've seen reports of the spread of COVID-19 in factories and other job sites simply because employees had to work. We're talking here, Paul, about people who had no other choice but to show up or lose their jobs and that's something that we don't want to see. You know, let's, let's be clear: we're not advocating that people are put into a position uh, where they have to come to work um, unwell. That's not something that we're uh, we're advocating, and and that's why we were very very comfortable to see when when the government brought in the three days sick leave um, back in May. Um, but you know, at, at the end of the day, businesses need to be able to um, to succeed. They need to be able to carry on. They need to be able to manage. Their costs, and one thing we were certainly hoping for when it became clear that the government was going to be doing something in this area, something that we were advocating very, very strongly for was, well, let's look at, at how we can mitigate these costs with a reduction somewhere else. Whether it's a reduction to the employer health tax, whether it's uh, addressing the property tax issue, there had to be, in our mind, some means of helping businesses to pay for this. 
Paul, you um, told the Burnaby now that you're relieved that the province didn't land on 10 paid sick days, but that five is still too many. Can you say more on what you think the ideal is? Well, I think, it, again, it, it's, it's going to be um, case by case in many respects, and, and what will work for, for, for some businesses may, may not for others. We were hearing very much from our members, um, that, and by the way, most of whom do offer uh, sick days, we were hearing that, that three would be okay. You know, that, 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 that was something that, given that what the options were, three would be okay. Five, we think, is, is, is a, say, uh, a little bit too much. We were hoping that, 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 that it wasn't uh, something that was going to be mandated. But 10 days, to be honest, we were hearing from, uh, from our members would have been much too much to be able to absorb. Um, and, and, and also the area where it's, it's, it's gone into the area of part-time and casual workers, again, was something that we were hearing from our members was really uh, much too much of a challenge. Paul, thanks so much for being with us this morning and taking our questions. It's really good to talk to you. Yes, you too. Thanks very much. With all this talk about sick pay leave, uh, we look at an often little talked about practice at the workplace. It's called masking symptoms. That's people who hide their symptoms from illness at work. Fortessa Latifi joins me on the line now. Good morning, Fortessa. Good morning. How are you? Great. Thank you for being with us. You wrote an article on masking symptoms for Business Insider. What is masking symptoms? Yeah, so masking is the idea of hiding your symptoms and performing health in front of other able-bodied people in public. Okay, so what kind of behaviors result from hiding symptoms? Yeah, so, I mean, it's kind of difficult. It changes from person to person and depends on the chronic illness or disability, the nature of their disability. But for people with migraines, they might have to sit in a fluorescent lit room, even though that's really aggravating their migraines, or they might not be able to put an ice pack on their head or take the medication that they need. And so it's it's kind of interesting because the cycle of masking is such that if you hide your symptoms or you ignore them, they get worse. So when you eventually do confront them, you're in way more pain than you would have been if you had just been able to handle it in the beginning. It sounds like a a somewhat lonely existence in public played out in public. Yeah, uh, it definitely is. It is lonely to be chronically ill. It is lonely to be disabled and I think one of the hardest things about masking is that if you do it well, um, people don't even believe that you're that sick. And if you don't do it well, then people are uncomfortable with the reality of your illness being right in front of their face. So there's kind of no way to win. Yeah. And I suppose there's also uh, some stigma related to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's this idea and I think it's, it's slowly changing, but it's at a glacial pace that being sick in any way is unprofessional. And for people who are chronically sick or disabled, that's obviously an issue. I mean, I think we all need to interrogate why we think it's unprofessional to have a heating pad at your work desk if you suffer from endometriosis or why it's seen as unprofessional to take a rescue migraine medication during a meeting because it shouldn't be, um, but it is. Yeah, I recall uh, early on in my career um, walking by the bathroom and hearing an employee uh, crying 
And I went into the washroom to check on her. She was lying on the ground, gripping her stomach. And she said, this just Mm -hmm. happens uh, every month for a few days, but I I can't Mm -hmm. take work off for it. Um, And it made me realize how well she was at masking symptoms. She'd walk out of the bathroom half an hour later uh, with her makeup refreshed and and wouldn't have a comment about it to anyone. I'm curious what role you think the pandemic and work from home had on people who normally have to mask at work. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it can really be overstated how strenuous masking is. And with working at home, you didn't have to do that. You could just be as sick as you were. There wasn't that pressure to present as able-bodied or neurotypical or pretend that you weren't in pain when you were. And so I think that that was a relief for a lot of chronically ill and disabled people. And it made them realize what the true weight of masking is, because now you know, for a lot of people, it's time to put that back on and to get ready and to pretend that they're not in pain. And it's, I mean, I think that we all need to think about why we're forcing people whose bodies aren't meant for these situations into these situations. Yeah. So you you mentioned a little bit there, you hint at it, but what else should be done? I mean, it's, it's difficult to say, and obviously it depends on Um, what the nature of the job is. But I just think that now that we know that so many jobs can be done remotely, that people who are in charge and bosses should think about why they don't allow those accommodations for chronically ill people just regularly. I mean, obviously, this was a, a difficult situation with the pandemic. But I mean, chronically ill and disabled people are in these situations all the time, and we should allow those accommodations if they're possible. How much of an issue do you think masking is? I mean, because it's a hidden behavior, a hidden habit, I guess it's really hard to nail numbers, but is it a big problem? Well, you think about just the massive percentage of people who are chronically ill in some way or who are disabled, and I do want to mention that it does, um, that masking mostly affects I mean, masking affects women more than men um, for a few reasons, but mostly because women are more likely to have chronic illnesses than men. So I do think it is it is a big problem, but I mean, the nature of it is that it's hidden, right? So you don't know how big of a problem it is. And I think it's an incredibly vulnerable thing, especially in the workplace to say, hey, I'm sick and I am forever sick. This isn't just a cold where I can take a few days off and I'll be better. Like I am sick in a way that affects my life forever. And that is an incredibly vulnerable thing to say. Yeah. In your article in the Business Insider, uh, you mentioned one woman you talked to who's a teacher and I guess she was suffering from migraines and she would find herself needing to grip furniture in the classroom in order to hold her body up, to hoist her body up. Um, And it made me think that there are some people for whom working at home has allowed them to just uh, integrate maybe their symptoms throughout the day, but still get their work done. Did you encounter that from the people that you interviewed? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the interesting thing is, is that when you're working at home, even if you're having a flare is one of the words that they use in the chronic illness community to talk about, like when you're in pain or if you're having an active migraine or something of that nature, 
when you're at home, you can work around it. So I talk to people who are like, yeah, I had a migraine the other day, but I was at home. So I pulled the blinds shut. I put an ice pack on my head and I laid in bed and was, you know, doing what I needed to do. And so I, I think that people don't understand that chronically ill and disabled people are used to working around their symptoms. It's just that it's not comfortable to do that in front of other people because it's a very private thing to be sick and it's not comfortable to do that, to show that to other people, especially in a professional setting. So as people return to the workplace from their work from home situations, um, what can people who don't suffer from uh, chronic conditions do for colleagues and coworkers, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. I think that there's there's just an awareness that needs to be there that it's not, it's not, like, there are so many people who suffer from chronic illness and disabilities. And I think that when you know that um, a colleague has a situation like that, like the best thing that you can do is be supportive and notice when they're masking maybe a little bit, because I've noticed that in my own situation, when I used to work in an office and, um, and a friend would notice that I would start masking, which like one thing I would do is like put on my sunglasses because everything like felt too bright. Mm. They would say like, Hey, maybe it's time to like take a medication or maybe it's, and that was obviously like a very personal relationship. So it depends, but I think just understanding that it's going to change based on the day to day, how sick someone is. So something that a source said to me is that, you know, people expect you to be the same level of sick every day. So if you go into the office and you're, you know, feel really well that day, which is the nature of chronic illness, that sometimes you feel okay and sometimes you don't. And then you come in the next day and you feel really sick. People are like, so you were fine yesterday. So I f you should be fine today. And it's like, well, that's not how it happens. And I think just in education about, you know, taking the time to learn for yourself, like, okay, yeah, there are these massive fluctuations and people aren't always going to feel the same. Fortessa, thanks so much for bringing our attention to these uh, ideas this morning. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, after a disappointing election campaign, the Green Party of Canada has set its sights on the next election. And here to join us to talk about the party's future is their interim leader, Dr. Amita Kuttner. Kuttner has a science background and is an astrophysicist. Not many people can say that. At only 30 years old, Kuttner is the youngest leader of a political party in Canada. Good morning, Amita. Good morning. The Green Party had, let's face it, a messy last election campaign and statistics showed that support has tanked. So the leadership role was obviously not an easy one to step into after that. Why did you want to become interim leader of the Green Party? Well, I think given the last year and, well, the experiences that we had, it was very difficult to watch being invested in the party. It, it, it's hard to watch both the difficulties with the election, but also, you know, people that, that I am friends with and know well and care for that have really had a hard time after so many years of work. So I really am invested in all the work we're trying to get done. And I really felt like I had the right skill set. So I thought it would be a perfect time to help. So what are you going to do to help the Green Party gain back all that ground that was lost in the last election cycle? Well, there are some, there's, a, there's some basic things that we need to do. 
like uh, on the ground organizing with EDAs, building our strengths, getting our fundraising back up, making sure that we also, though, go through a healing process and a bit of unification to make sure that we come to a common vision that we can actually present and build back some of that trust, as well as trust building on the inside and leading a leadership contest. Okay, so what are the Green Party's plans moving forward? Well, right now, I think strengthening in the unification is number one, but also making sure that we integrate the work that is being done by our wonderful caucus of MPs and highlighting everything they get done and supporting them so we have an impact to show when election time comes around. Okay. Now, I'm sure you've been hearing questions of relevance. There was a time when climate issues were largely ignored by other parties, and that's where the Green Party offered a distinct option, helped set it apart. Now that every other party, including you know the pro- progressive conservatives, the NDP, the liberals, all everyone is looking at climate change as a major part of their platform. So then how relevant is the Green Party today? I think the Green Party is more relevant than it ever has been. And one of those reasons is because everybody's talking about, about climate. And it's, it's great that everybody's talking about climate, but there are so many different approaches to how we construct our future through a climate emergency. And I think that the Green Party has an essential role to show that it really matters how that's done and taking everybody into consideration, making sure that everyone's well-being is taken care of, making sure that our way of life is truly sustainable is important. So we're not, you know, going to be willing to continue to have, you know, fossil fuel industry that that is allowed to pollute. And also we want to make sure that everybody who works in these industries are taking care of it in the transition. Okay, I know uh, you probably can't get down to the extreme nitty-gritty specifics yet. You've just stepped into the role. (laughs) But uh, I know you're being asked to by a lot of uh, media outlets, including us right now. But still, uh, what I'm curious about is how can the Green Party do something that's different than what the other parties are doing, given that all eyes now are on the climate change that's happening around us, that's affecting, especially here in BC, we're seeing it right now as we speak. The party is unique in a lot of ways that I think we don't tend to talk about because we do just and have historically focused on environmental and climate issues. A lot of what makes us completely different is our approach to politics and our approach to governance. We strive to work in consensus. We focus on community representation over partisanship. And so the goal for us would be to actually be living our values and developing community organization so that we're presenting something actually extremely unique. A lot of our policies are on the cutting edge of what we hope to see. (laughs) And, you know, that involves the way that we actually structure our economies, the way that we work together in caucus, the way that we actually think, you know, MPs should be serving their communities. Okay. You mentioned there the approach to politics is different, uh, but we did see over the the last uh, messy election campaign uh, that there was not even consensus within the party. Um, and you talked there about living your values. How do you recover from the morale issues that have arisen within the Green Party and the perception of it from the outside too? I'm feeling very, very hopeful right now. <laughs> we just had our, our policy convention and getting together with everyone showed that, you know, we, we do, we're committed to working through these things with each other. And it's not always easy but we we care to do it. And I think that actually says something because the commitment is so great. We have a new federal council that is extremely diverse. They bring lived experience and we're ready to work through all the issues that have shown up. I think too, that this is growing pains that 
decision whether we want to be a more traditional pol- political party or whether we want to really be be unique in that way is one of the big questions that we've been grappling with. But with some with some inner work, <laughs> I suppose you could call it, I think we will come to something and and be ready to move forward. And hopefully, when we get a next leader, this person will be ready to really set that direction as well. Yeah, I think you really nailed it there, that there is so much uh, work to happen now, to, there's so much that has to happen right now within the party to change that perception. Um, what is your sense? Is the Green Party going to become uh, more progressive, or is it going to go more towards the center? I don't think it's either. I I think that, you know, the political spectrum is a particular thing where people pick their areas and then they battle each other. I think what we're looking for is something that's outside of that. And it doesn't mean that it's necessarily therefore in the center. I think that our policies on the whole are incredibly progressive, but it's, all, it's just sitting on a different foundation of community building, of decentralization and things like that that are fundamentally different than, than other parties. Okay, how will you attract new members? Well, I think as we go through this process, we'll finally be able to show ourselves for who we are at the core. And by doing that, and by also actually organizing again in community and doing outreach and meeting people and welcoming them in to the process of actually dreaming about our future. Okay, we all know this is an interim position. Where do you see your role going after this interim period? Well, I hope to do a good job, and I hope that we have a wonderful new leader after me, but I'm not sure where it's going to go for me after this. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Amita Kuttner, for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.